Well, this time, kids ages four to six are welcome to join Mike and Phyllis over here. What are you guys studying this morning? How God gave Abram a new name. Okay. Well, we want to be faithful to pray for our children, pray for our own time as well, to see the Lord's mercies in everything, even as we're reminded of barrenness. And so let's bow our heads and pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you've offered us through Jesus Christ. We thank you that though oftentimes we feel as though you are a God who is far off, you are always near. That you are a God who pursues, that you are a God who delivers, that you are a God who saves, that you are a God who gives us a new name, gives us a hope, gives us a legacy, gives us redemption and inheritance, eternal life with you. God, we do pray for our children as they hear about your promise to Abraham how you were faithful to him in, in his barrenness and his hopelessness and his wandering to bless him, to make him into a great nation and through him and his family be the means by which all the families of the earth would be blessed. And you take sorrow and you turn it into rejoicing. We do pray that our children would see the hope there is in you and that even in their young hearts and young minds, they would love you, see your good hand, and trust in your word. And Lord, we pray that same thing for us this morning as we spend time in the Psalms that our hearts too would be made glad that you would be our exceeding joy. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen. Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 42. You can find it on page 469, 470, and the Bible is provided in the chairs. We're actually going to be looking at two psalms this morning. We're going to look at Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. There have been a lot of questions as to whether or not we should understand these as two individual songs, two individual psalms, or as one. Because if you look at these two psalms, they share the same themes, they share the same refrain, it, it almost seems better to understand them as a song with three stanzas versus two. You also notice that, that there's no title or instructional line at the beginning of Psalm 43 like you see at the beginning of Psalm 42 or Psalm 44 or most of the Psalms for that matter. And so that's led many people to wonder and to debate around whether or not these are two individual Psalms or really just one. Well, I'm not concerned about answering that debate this morning. That's not why we're here. My concern this morning is to answer, to seek to answer the question that both of these Psalms beg. And that is this, where are you, God, when I am depressed? 
Where are you when my soul is downcast? Where are you when I'm sad, when I feel utterly alone, when tears are filling my eyes, when I feel like I'm lost in darkness? Where are you, God? Where are you when I'm overwhelmed by this tempest and turmoil that is my life and I feel like this darkness will never, ever, ever lift? Where are you? And I think that Psalm 43 helps to answer that question. And that's ultimately why I want to look at these two psalms together. You know, when we come to the Word of God, we read about joy, we read about hope, we read about peace in believing. We read these stories of God's mighty acts of, of deliverance, of renewal, of restoration. We see evidence of God abundantly blessing his people. We, we read and we hear these songs of triumph of Christ over sin and death. And we, we hear prayers of, of just optimism, of zeal, of eagerness, looking forward to the glorious return of Christ and our eternal bliss in him. And then we close our Bibles and we give our parting thanks and we say amen and then we go out into the world that is filled with anxieties and worries and frustrations and discouragements and pain and suffering and calamities and wars and sickness and disease and death. And the weight of it can be crushing it just plagues our soul. It's as if the cares of the world reach up and they take their cold, hard fingers and wrap them around our throats to choke the life out of us. They drag us down into the depths of despair, into this crushing, bottomless, watery grave where we cannot even cry out for fear of drowning, where no one can see or no one can hear. And our tears cry out for us. Where are you, God? Have you forsaken me? How long will I go about in, in grief and in mourning? Have you rejected me? Well, if that's you this morning, or if that's ever been you, then I want you to know that you're in good company. You stand with the likes of Job and Hannah and Elijah and John the Baptist and the Apostle Paul and even Christ Jesus himself. If you've not experienced that kind of spiritual depression that I've just described, don't assume that you won't. And even if you haven't, just know that there are people that the Lord has placed in your life that have, that are, and that will. And we need this word to us so that we can identify that and that we can help them to walk through that faithfully and gently with them. Because here's the thing, spiritual depression is a silent sorrow. Oftentimes, we don't see it, and it just 
simmers below the surface and we're all laughing and happy. People are grieving. The Lord has placed you in their lives and them in yours to walk through that together. We want to be faithful to help them. But you know, I'm guessing that all of us at some point in our life, one way or another, we, we, we have felt a measure of soul sorrow that has led us to ask the question, why? Why, God? Why this? Where are you? That experience is common and perhaps even more common the more that we know and love Christ because the more we know and love Christ, the more that we're in the word of God, the more we see the great disparity between the promises that we see in scripture and our experience or at least the perception of our own reality. And so we're left wondering, what do we do? And that's really the key that we're going to explore this morning. What do we do to whom or to what do we turn? And what we're going to see this morning from Psalm 42 and 43 is this, that the soul that sinks in sorrow is delivered by hope in God. The soul that sinks in sorrow is delivered by hope in God. So let's read Psalm 42 and 43 together. It says, To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All of your breakers and all of your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. At night, his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? 
Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill, to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Why are you at turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Here is a man who knows and loves God, but his soul is downcast. He's in turmoil. He's sorrowful. He's grieving. He's depressed. And yet, he's fighting for hope in God. He knows that God is his exceeding joy. And he longs more than anything else just to feel like God is his exceeding joy again. And God has given us this man's song, this man's prayer as a gift to us to teach us how we too can fight for joy and hope and peace in the midst of our own despair. And so what I want us to do as we continue to look at this psalm, I want us to look first at the external and the internal conditions of this soul that sinks in sorrow, that leads him to plead with God, why? And after we do that, I then want us to see how this man is delivered by hope in God. And so first, let's examine the soul that sinks in sorrow. You know, there are all sorts of reasons that our souls may be downcast, okay? When you think about your lives, those times when you've been discouraged, those times that you've been depressed, there have been many, many external factors, many things that have come into your life that have led you to feel discouraged. Many oppressive external conditions that leave us feeling hopeless, that leave us feeling full of turmoil. And one of the conditions that is clearly described by the psalmist it should be obvious to us, is the oppression of his enemies. I mean, he says there in verse 10, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me continually, where is your God? There are people in this man's life who have aligned themselves against him. They are his adversaries and they taunt him. They mock him. They ridicule him. They're constantly berating him. If your God is so great, then why doesn't he protect you? Why doesn't he deliver you even from my hand? And they continue to oppress him. We also learn from 43 verse 1 that these are ungodly, deceitful, and unjust people. Hey, these are not righteous people. These, are not, these people are not close to God and I'm somehow in sin. But what we see here is that they're wicked and he's asking God to defend his cause, which would suggest that his cause is a righteous cause. You see what's happening there? They're wicked and his cause is just, right, true, and godly. And yet they have power over him. It doesn't seem fair. You know, I, I love to read biographies of men of faith, missionaries and, and leaders within the history of the church that God has used powerfully to advance the cause of Christ throughout the world. And, and one of the things that you see as you read these stories over and over and over again, you see profound conviction, 
These men knew the word. They loved the word. They were committed to the word. You see godly character and that they tried to faithfully follow God and, and submitted themselves to him and their lives were changed by that. You see all of these great heroic acts of faith in just unbelievable ways how the Lord has used them. But what you also see, one of the stories that emerges over and over again in their storyline is the deep discouragement they felt due to the oppression of their enemies. Missionaries like Henry Martin, William Carey, Hadnaram Judson, pastors and teachers like Charles Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther, they all battled with depression in part because of the oppression of their enemies. You see, the more that you stand for Christ, the more you will see that other people stand against you. I mean, the Apostle Paul put it this way, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And he, of course, was no exception. Just read 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. Get this, what he says. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So it shouldn't really be surprising to us that the oppression of of the enemies would lead to feelings of deep, deep discouragement. But if you notice in 42 verse 9, and in 43 verse 2, The psalmist asks, why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? So I think that to that, we can safely add the oppression of our great adversary, Satan, who constantly deceives, who constantly ridicules, who constantly mocks us with the very same taunt and tempts us in the midst of our afflictions and difficulties and frustrations with the very same question, where is your God? Isn't that what he does? And if we're not fighting against Satan's temptations, he will lead you to a place of deep, deep discouragement and doubt. Your heart will be filled with sorrow and you will begin to mimic the very same question that he asks you. Where are you, God? 1 Corinthians 15 describes death as our last enemy. And so perhaps the psalmist only is, is only naturally in mourning the loss of someone whom he holds dear. Maybe he's even mourning his own impending death. We don't really know. But grieving is an appropriate, a right response to death. Something wrong if, if somebody dies and you just don't feel a thing. That's not godly. But how do we mourn? But there could be other external factors at play. I mean, in verse 6, the psalmist says, My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. You see, he's cut off from what he considers to be home. In verse 1, you see that there's this deep longing for God. In verse 4, he pours out his soul of how he desires to lead God's people in the procession to the house of God again. But the temple is in Jerusalem. And he is hundreds and hundreds of miles away, up on some mountain somewhere. And 
all he wants to do is go home. He wants to be with his family. He wants to be with his friends. He wants to be with his people again. But most of all, he wants to worship God in the place that he once did. He's homesick and it grieves his heart. And I can't help but wonder what other external factors might have been at play. Because after all, his enemies ask him the question, where's your God? They don't ask that to somebody whose life is going great. You notice that, right? Your life is going great. People are not like, hey, where's your God? But when your life doesn't look so great, that's when they ask the question, right? And so they could have asked that because they've been ruthless scoffers who are leagued with Satan. But it also could be that, that I'm, and I'm guessing that when they looked at this guy, they say, you know what? You look like your God has abandoned you. There was something about his life, his physical nature, his, his actions, his disposition, his mannerisms that indicated to them that God had abandoned them. And they're just calling it out. I've seen it for what it is. Man, you look terrible. God is clearly not for you. Maybe it was physical illness. Maybe it was a disability or chronic pain. Maybe it was a financial hardship or he was grieving the loss of someone or something that wasn't necessarily death, but nevertheless, he lost it and it's plaguing him. Something like the, the rejection or abandonment or perhaps the rebellion of a child. Maybe he was grieved over the consequences of his sin. That ought to grieve us. Maybe he wasn't sleeping. Maybe there were physiological factors at work, like his hormone levels were off or his blood sugar levels were off or his diet was off. All of these things can contribute to a melancholy disposition. But regardless of what it is, these people see it and it leads them to believe that God has abandoned him. There are all sorts of external factors that can lead us to a depressed state. And it affects our relationship with God. It affects the way we see God, the way we view God, the way we think about God. Though we don't know exactly what all of these factors are that led this psalmist to this depressed state, we do know this from verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. Now that, that sounds really majestic, right? That sounds great. So beautiful and profound. I wonder what he means. But he means what he says next. All your breakers and all your waves have gone over me. He's saying, God, I know that this situation, this circumstance, this pain, this sorrow that I'm feeling right now, it's from you. These are your breakers. These are your waves. And they're crashing over me and I'm drowning. We don't know the details of what this psalmist is going through, but we do know this. They are from the Lord. Now, those are the external conditions at work in this psalmist's life. Maybe as I've described them, you've you began to identify some of those in your own life. Some of those things that would lead you towards discouragement and, and just kind of led you to this place of, of sorrow and doubt and despair. But before we kind of consider his internal condition, I, I do want to say this. There are good reasons to be discouraged. There's a problem if we're not discouraged by our sin. Our sin ought to discourage us, right? 
There are external factors in our lives that could, could lead us to be discouragement. And discouragement itself is not necessarily a sin. Okay, We have the Holy Spirit who is grieved. The Holy Spirit does not cease to be holy the moment he starts grieving. And so things like sorrow and grief and pain and loss and sometimes even despair are not sinful in and of themselves. See, this situation is not like Psalm 73 where Asaph recognized, you know what, I almost slipped, I almost stumbled, I almost was like completely, utterly lost. I was wrong because I was in envy. That's not what's happening here, okay? The psalmist is downcast, but that does not mean that he's in sin. There is room in Scripture to grieve and to grieve very, very deeply and yet still grieve with hope. Now, in terms of his internal condition, it's clear that he has a very deep and profound longing when we are depressed, we experience, often that, that depression is experienced, it's connected is to this very deep and pervasive longing within our souls. We need people to come alongside us and to help us see what it is we're desiring, what it is we're longing for. Because there's something to lead us to this great level of discontentment that we're now weeping. And he describes it in terms of a deer panting for water. You know, you think about a spooked deer that's running like crazy, just trying to get away from its pursuers. It's running through dry, arid places. It's exhausted. It's ready to collapse. And all it wants to do is find a cool stream to drink from. It says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. Look at that. His longing is for God. My, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He's longing for a very good thing. In fact, his, there's no greater thirst than one can have than this one right here. And all he wants to do is come face to face with God. So we ask that question, when shall I come and appear before God? Lord, all I want to do is see you face to face. That is my desire. That's my deepest longing. And there's desperation in that longing. In verse 3, he says, My tears have been my food day and night. You see, this is no momentary, short-lived sadness. This is not a situational depression or discouragement like, Oh man, I got a bad grade on my test and now I'm down. I'm kind of kicking myself. That's not what we're talking about here. He's saying, I can't even eat. My tears have been my food. This is a pervasive sadness that leaves this guy wondering whether or not God is even there. And I think we have some indication that this has now brought him to a place where he is now feeding off of his discouragement. In verse 5, he acknowledges that his soul is downcast and in turmoil. And for a moment there, you, you begin to think to yourself that he's coming out of it right? There's a ray of light. He knows that he should not be downcast. He knows that his soul should not be in turmoil. He tells himself to hope in God. And then what happens right there in verse six? He returns right back to it. My soul is downcast within me. And that same refrain that he just echoed in in verses five and six, they come up again in verse 11. And then at the end of Psalm 43. These psalms end with him praising God and yet he's still 
feeling downcast. In verse 8, he says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. A prayer to the God of my life. And what I understand him to be saying here is, look, God, I'm still obeying your commands. I'm still trying to be faithful here. I'm still singing your song even in the darkest night of my soul. I'm still crying out to you in prayer. But my soul is still in turmoil and sorrow falls upon sorrow. And it falls upon sorrow. And I feel like I'm in quicksand. And the harder I fight and the more I struggle, the deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into this, I sink. Friends, that is a terrifying place to be. To be so frightened that the soul of one who loves and seeks to follow Christ, he's pleading, he's begging, and nothing seems to be happening, but he's sinking further in. I know this is terrifying because this is where I've been for a good portion of the last year. I've let, I've tried to let you know, talked about it in sermons, but over the last year, I have been in a season of deep depression like I have never experienced before. Now, I have always kind of had a bit of a melancholy spirit, a bit of a pessimistic and attitude that's easily kind of discouraged and sees the problem in those kinds of things. There have been certainly times in my life where there have been situational depression where I can point and say, man, that really got me low. But this is of a different category altogether. I'm just weeping. I don't know why. It's just like, there's a day where I was Washing dishes. Washing dishes. Not a thought in my mind. It was a good day. It was a fine day. And suddenly I'm breaking down. I'm not thinking about anything. I mean, it's like, it's not, I'm not plagued by, by these thoughts of everything that's going wrong in my life. I'm just sitting there washing my dishes and I'm crying. You guys, I was ready to quit. The psalm came up over and over again. I would read it. I would pray it. I would sing to the Lord. I would read his word. I would strive to obey him. And nothing changed. And I still felt empty and alone. And the more that I would strive to obey him, the the more I felt like I I tried the deeper and deeper into the pit I fell and fear took over me to the point where I became cold towards God because I was afraid. I was afraid that if I continued to pour my heart out to God and, and, and I would continue to feel that way, then it would only just drive me further and further down to the point of being lost utterly. It was terrifying to cry out to God in the darkness of my despair and to hear no answer. And I felt like the psalmist did deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. God, your waterfall has pushed me down like you're at the top of Niagara and it, and it falls and you plummet to the bottom and the water is 
pouring down on you, shoving you to the bottom of the pool below. And you're screaming. You're crying out, but you're under the water and no one can hear. No one can hear your voice over the roars of the waterfall. And you're drowning. The water is filling your lungs and you don't know what to do. No one hears my cries. I felt totally alone. I felt like I was drowning. And it was God's breakers. God's breakers that were breaking me. It wasn't just some random chance thing. It was God's breakers and and, and God's waves crashing over me. I felt utterly abandoned. I asked that question, I don't know how many times. Where are you, God? I'm trying. Verse 9, have you forgotten me? Why, Why do I go about mourning all the day long? Because of this oppression. 43 verse 2, why have you rejected me? I know what he's talking about. And it left this psalmist, this this worship pastor, this divinely inspired songwriter unable to praise God. He says, why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. He does say that, that's great. But then what does he say next? For I shall again praise God, my salvation and my God. He's saying, look, I can't praise you now, or at least not the way I want to be, or not the way that I know that I should be. But God, I'm trusting the fact that I can praise you again. His sorrow has stopped his worship. It's swallowed up his joy and it has weakened his faith to the point of he's feeling utterly hopeless. Now, again, if this is you or if this has ever been you, I want you to take heart here because, again, God has given us this psalm as a gift to us because he understands our hearts perfectly. He wants us to know that there are many faithful brothers and sisters in Christ that have been exactly where you are and God has met them there and he will meet you there as well. This psalmist is by no means out of this struggle. He's still in the midst of turmoil and he's asking God why. And I want you to know that it's okay to ask God why. It really is. It's not a sin to ask God why. And scripture is filled with men and women who are sad and discouraged and struggling for hope who ask God why. Hannah asked God why. Elijah asked God why. John the Baptist sat in prison and asked Jesus why. Jesus sweat drops of blood and asked God why. The Christian life is not some cheesy grin, never feel blue kind of life. It can be filled with sadness. But before we move away from this place of desperation and pleading, we need to take a minute to identify some of the dangers in persisting in this state. You know, it's one thing to experience seasons where your soul has sunk in sorrow, and you will. I mean, I think the change of seasons are even an indication of the change of our own hearts. There's the green of spring, there's the heat of summer, there's the turn of fall, and there's the dead of winter. We all experience that. It's another thing to be trapped there in an endless winter. What are some of the signs that we're turning inward rather than Godward that could permanently drown our souls in sorrow? 
Well, first, I would have to say we need to be careful that your questions don't become accusations. It's not a sin to ask God why. It's a sin to accuse God of not being good, of not being righteous, of not being loving, of not being holy. If your questions turn to doubting God's character, if your questions are turning towards anger at God, that's a dangerous place to be. A second danger would be to feed off of your discouragement. To sort of take on this woe is me, I'm the victim mentality where you refuse to move beyond your grief, but actually you actually sort of twist your grief as a means of gaining attention for yourself or, or a means by which you find some kind of identity in or, or maybe you, what you do is you go and you surround yourself with all sorts of other melancholy people who will, will just kind of feed off of each other's bitter discouragement. We can all have a tendency to do that. Discouraged people need people that are less discouraging and more encouraging, just kind of happy. The Lord gave me a gift of a Pollyanna type wife, which I desperately, desperately needed. You know, I once worked with this guy that would regularly threaten suicide. And you don't mess around with that. You don't shrug that off. You take that very, very seriously. Now, it was clear that he was discouraged. He was very discouraged. It was clear that he was frustrated. It was clear that he was longing for relationships and he was crying out for help. But what became clear over time was that these threats were empty. He was not acting on them. They were a means for him to gain attention. You see, he was feeding off of his discouragement. It became who he was and how he identified himself and the only way that he knew how to reach out and actually relate to other people. So we continued to love him to help him to see that he had value and that he could have friendships and feel nearness and intimacy with other people and not have to go that direction. A third and perhaps the greatest danger would be for you to cut yourself off from God and other people. And this seems like such a good idea when you're low. Man, I can't even tell you how many times I was ready to throw in the towel and all I wanted to do was just go and live on a mountain somewhere in a cabin by myself. That's all I wanted to do is just get away from it all. Fleeing in isolation is a form of self-protection. When we feel as though our pain or our hurt and our grief and our sorrow is coming from someone else, either God or someone else, or we believe that, someone, that no one can really hear us or no one can really understand our sorrow, we seek to protect ourselves by removing ourselves from God and other people. We drop off the grid and we try to go radio silent. But all we end up doing is removing ourselves from any help any counsel, any hope that can get us out of the pit that we're in. When you're in a pit, you can't get yourself out of the pit. You can try to move the pit around all you want, but that pit is going with you, and you're going to be in it. And we silence all the other voices that can speak 
hope to us. And what, what we're left with, all that we're left with is our own voice. And that's, that's the fourth issue. We, we're left listening to ourselves. We focus on our condition. We, we mull over and over and over and over again on all of our sorrows. And our voice begins to amplify. It begins to exaggerate. It begins to exacerbate to the, the, our condition to the point that we lose ourselves in our sorrows. So we sink further and further and further and further in. So we need to be careful to hear the counsel that this psalmist gives us to help us out of that sorrow. We must cling to it as a lifeline that has been thrown down from the rescue helicopter lest waves overtake us and we become a casualty to our own sorrow. So you see, the soul that sinks in sorrow, second, is delivered by hope in God. Now, if you're looking for a quick fix, if you're looking for some microwave happiness meal from this text, you're not going to get it. That's not the way this works. Hope is not some random wishful thinking. Hope is a certainty that God will fulfill all of his promises in the day of Christ. It's a certainty in that. It's a future faith. It's a trust in what's going to happen, a certainty that that is going to be the case. But that doesn't alleviate. It doesn't take away. It doesn't microwave it. It doesn't wash it. It doesn't magically poof and then it's gone. The way out of this depression is a process. It is not five easy steps. The psalmist here is still in that process, but he's fighting hard. He's fighting valiantly. He's fighting the good fight of faith. He's doing what he needs to do to get out of that pit. The soul that hopes in God fights against listening to himself, listening to his condition, listening to his sorrows, listening to the oppressive voices of the enemy, listening to all of his thoughts and feelings about his circumstances. And what he begins to do is he begins talking. He begins talking to others. He begins talking to himself and he begins talking to God. The psalmist's willingness to openly and honestly talk with others is the reason why we have this psalm. We have Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 because this guy was willing to get real. He he was willing to take off the mask and be open and vulnerable and share his struggles. And it's of benefit to us. Rather than sitting in silent sorrow, he opened himself up. He humbled himself and he vulnerably shares his heart with others, not in a way to seek their pity or to paint himself the victim. He shares it in order that he might have hope in God. But not only that, He's forthright about his weakness and his despair so he can turn his discouragement into encouragement for us. You see what happens there? He comforts those with the afflictions that he's received. Again, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He opens himself up as to a physician, letting him know of his aches and his pains and his symptoms so that the physician might help him to find a remedy. And so one of the most important things that you can do if you are depressed is to begin to openly and honestly talk with someone. Do not 
remain silent. And this is a big deal because everything in you is going to want to go the other way. You're going to want to crawl under the rock and die, not go talk to somebody about it. That seems like death to you. And so you're going to have to fight for that because your sorrow is going to lead you in the opposite direction. You need to lean on brothers and sisters in Christ who are going to help you to walk through it. Those who will faithfully sing this prayer right along with you, but who will also gently keep you from remaining in your sorrow. What you don't want to do is just kind of go blab, just kind of dump everything on somebody and just kind of look at somebody as as your puke bucket. But instead, you need people who are willing to help you walk through it, who are going to call you out at times. Most of the time, they're going to be gentle, they're going to be patient, but at times, you know, sometimes you just need kind of a swift kick in the pants. And we had this psalm because the writer was willing to do that. He was willing to openly and honestly share his struggle with others. But he doesn't simply stop at talking to others. He doesn't just ask them to bear his burden for them. He also does the hard work of talking to himself. And this is key in the fight of faith as we struggle with depression. This is huge. We must actively seek to stop listening to ourselves and to begin to start talking to ourselves. Now, I first came across this when I was reading Spiritual Depression by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Actually, I think I think I actually first heard it by reading C.J. Mahaney's Across Center Life because he read Spiritual Depression. That led me to read Spiritual Depression, right? But Martin Lloyd-Jones is dealing with this psalm and how to think about this. And one of the most profound paragraphs was right there in the introduction where Lloyd-Jones declares, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you the moment that you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. And they bring back the problems of yesterday and so on. Somebody is talking. Who is talking to you? Yourself is talking to you. Now this man's treatment, he's talking about the psalmist. This man's treatment was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. And so he stands up and he says, self, listen for a moment. I will speak to you. The main art And the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself, turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed and unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God who he is and of what he is, of what he has done and what he has pledged himself to do. Preach the gospel to yourself. And that's exactly what we see this psalmist doing. Friends, if I were to come here this morning and I were to walk up to you and I were to say, you know what? My soul is so discouraged. I I just don't think I can preach this morning. 
I don't think I can get up there and proclaim the gospel to all of you. So I'm, I'm not going to do that. What, what would you say to me? What counsel would you give me? You would say, Chet, get up there and preach the gospel. Preach it to yourself. Preach it to all those who hear because it's preaching the gospel that is going to bring life, that is going to uplift souls, that is going to grant us deliverance and hope that will not ever fade. Now, why is that acceptable counsel for me and not for you? Here we see the psalmist doing that very thing. He's preaching to himself over and over and over again. He reaffirms truth about God. In verses one and two, he declares how his soul pants for the living God. He's like, God, I I don't know where you are, but I know that you're not dead. I know that you're not silent. I know that you're not distant from me. I know that these pangs and these longings of my heart will only find their true satisfaction in you. And so I will thirst for you, O God. I will pant for you. In verse 2, he says, when shall I come and appear before God? He's trusting in the promise that all of God's people will come and stand before God face to face. And he wants that. That is the promise that he's looking forward to more than anything else. He said, when can that happen for me? When at last will I see you face to face? Three times in the refrain, he calls himself to hope in God. Hope in God. And he does this because he knows that there is no hope apart from God. That apart from God, we are hopeless, helpless, and without God in the world. God is our only hope. And not only that, he also declares with boldness and confidence, I shall again praise him. I'm not praising him now. He's not the way I want to, but I shall again praise him. Now, where does that come from? That doesn't come from my self-will. I'm going to do it. Here I go, God. But from the fact that God is faithful and he will surely do it. He reaffirms that God is his salvation and his God. My salvation is not deliverance from these circumstances, this situation. God alone is my salvation. He is my God. My feelings are not my God. God is God. In verses 8 and 9, he affirms God's sovereign love. You are my salvation and my God. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. God, you are faithful. God, your love is steadfast. At night, his song, that is God's song, the song that God has given him is on his heart. It is a prayer to the God who is his life. He is my rock. He is my refuge. And he's saying this while affirming God's perfect sovereignty over all of his trials and all all of his tribulations because he said in verse 7 deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls and I know that these are your breakers and your waves that have gone over me my sorrow is not pointless this this suffering is not without purpose 
this hardship, this pain. God, I, I know that it is not without your good hand being at work in my life. And though there is pain, God, who loves me, will never leave me or forsake me. Even in this time of darkness and despair, I know that God is working all things together for me because I love him and I'm called according to his purpose. Therefore, nothing, absolutely nothing will separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus, my Lord. In 43 verse 1, he cries out to God for vindication, to be his defense, and to deliver him from deceitful and unjust men because he knows that God alone is the only hope of vindication. In God alone, there is a defensible cause. And God alone can deliver him from all evil. He pleads with God in his darkness and in his confusion. God, I can't see anything. I don't know where I am. I don't know how to get out of this. In, in 43 verse 3, send your light and your truth. Let them lead me out of this pit so that I can again praise you to where my justification and my redemption can be found. And then in 43 verse 4, he says the most amazing thing. And it's something I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around. I don't have it all yet. And I've been looking at this psalm for a long time. I still don't quite grasp it fully. He calls God my exceeding joy. Tears have been my food day and night, but God, you are my exceeding joy. I have poured out my soul in the midst of all of my sorrow and all of my despair. God, you are my exceeding joy. Though your breakers and your waves have gone over me and I wonder whether or not you have forgotten me, though my soul is still cast down and I still find myself in turmoil, God, you are my exceeding joy. He is sad But at the same time, he is full of joy. Or as Paul says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Friends, let that be of comfort to you. You are not necessarily being unfaithful or joyless in your depression. You can actually experience a plaguing sadness and exceeding joy at the same time. We see the same thing in Jesus. When he was in the garden, his soul was depressed. He was deeply troubled to the point of sweating drops of blood. As he hung on the cross, he said, in light of this Very psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He felt that way. And yet we read in Hebrews chapter 12 that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. That he too felt that exact same way. You're not being unfaithful if you're not happy all the time. You can be discouraged and encouraged at the same time. Your soul can be cast down within you even as God is your exceeding joy. And it can be so because joy is more than an emotion. 
It is an emotion, but it is more than an emotion. It is a certainty of heart that is based upon an objective reality that cannot and will not be taken away. And that objective reality, which brings joy to my heart, even in the midst of my sorrow, is this, that the living God is my salvation. That's what it is. That's my exceeding joy. And it will never be quelched. So that's what the psalmist does. He reaffirms truth about God and he also remembers past mercies. Now, this psalm is kind of light on it. If you read other psalms, there's a lot more of this recalling past mercies. We've already seen this in in this series so far, but we even see it here in verse four. He remembers what a blessing it was to go with the people of God and to lead them in procession into the temple with glad shouts and songs of praise. In verse 6, he remembers God's faithfulness to him, even as he is far from home in the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. And so what we see happening here is he's not listening to himself. He's preaching to himself. He's preaching these objective and these experienced truths to his own soul, even though he does not feel that way. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. Hope in God. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. And so the psalmist talks to others. The psalmist talks to himself and the psalmist talks to God. This, this, This psalm is a song and a prayer from his heart to God. Even though he's a bit contemplative, he's focusing on where he's at spiritually, this is still a song to be sung to God. And, and now there's some aspects of the way that this psalm, psalmist approaches God that we need to consider here because God has designed them for our good and oftentimes we just kind of dismiss them. First of all, he longs to approach God in his sanctuary along with God's people. In verse four, he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. There is something profound There is something deeply spiritual, deeply significant about the people of God coming together to worship the Lord together in his sanctuary, to hear his word, to sing his word, to pray his word, to mutually encourage one another with his word. Something that is desperately lacking in the way that many professing Christians understand worship today. And they are making their souls sick. We like to think that we can come to God on our own terms. Take as much or as little as I want. Do it the way that I want. All that really matters is just me and God. I can just draw a circle around myself and it doesn't matter if anyone else is in the room or not. And though God is gracious, God is near, and God draws near to us, God designed 
corporate worship. God instituted the church as a local gathering to be a sanctuary for our souls. Guys, you've got to see this in Scripture. The psalmists talk about worship in ways that we don't even comprehend. And it's always in the plural. And we've tried desperately for many years now to point this out to you. Remember, in verse 6, he's on that quiet little mountain by himself. He's where we think we want to be. That mountaintop experience where it's just me and Jesus. And you know what he says to us? It's not enough. Elijah says that same thing to us. It's not enough. His soul is still sorrowful and he longs to rightly for the corporate gathering of God's people to be able to hear and receive and to praise God together. The downcast soul desperately needs that. You desperately need that because again, you are going to be in retreat mode. You're going to be wanting to run away, but it's the exact opposite thing that you actually need. You need to draw near to God and to his people. When we gather together, though it seems ordinary, seems unnecessary, maybe even it seems a little bit boring to you, the truth is the benefits that we receive from this are utterly profound. It is a nourishment to our souls. What the Bible actually describes it as is a foretaste of heaven. When we gather here and we surround ourselves with God's people, we're hearing God's word, we're pouring our hearts out to God and to each other, we receive a foretaste of heaven. But there's not just the sanctuary, there's also singing itself. That singing has a way of connecting our hearts to the words that we sing. And if the song is rich, if it's faithful to God's word, if it's biblically accurate, it has the ability then to join our hearts in such a way that our hearts submit to the truth of God and are able then to commit these truths to memory. And not only that, we can do that together. We can sing to each other. We can proclaim these truths to one another in one voice. It unites us. There are times in our sadness that we can barely even lift our heads. The idea of opening our Bibles and reading can seem completely overwhelming to us, absolutely exhausting. But you know what can happen? God can bring a song to mind. And your heart can sing it in your sadness and in your despair. And you are proclaiming truth. And when you do that, it soothes your soul. In verse 8, the psalmist is singing at night. So his sorrow is keeping him awake. He can't sleep. What is he doing? 
he's singing the song that God gave him. He's letting that be the prayer of his heart, a prayer to the God of his life. And so I would encourage you to commit rich songs to memory. Do that so that when you find yourself in despair, when your hope is waning, you can sing God's song as a prayer for your life. Songs like, It is well with my soul, or Commit Thou All Thy Griefs, the song that we just sang a little while ago. Songs that are rich in biblical truth that can give you hope and remind you that God has purpose even in your sorrow. And finally, and probably most obvious, there's prayer. This song is to be sung as a corporate prayer, as one that we all sing together. And throughout it, we see his longing, his yearning, his hope in God. But it's not until Psalm 43 that we see specific petitions that he gives to God. And look at what they are. He says, vindicate me, O God. He says, declare me righteous. Defend, that is, plead my cause against an ungodly people from deceitful and unjust man. Deliver me. In verse 3, he says, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Do you understand that what's happening here is that he's not pleading for relief from his feelings or deliverance from his circumstances. His prayer is to come to God rightly, to worship God wholeheartedly and unencumbered. He he doesn't say just get rid of my enemies or my sorrows, but God, the problem with the enemies and the sorrows is that they keep my heart from you. They chain my soul to this, this... this situation, this circumstance, rather than being able to focus on you. It says remove them to because keep, they keep me from you. His personal comfort or well-being is not at the center of his desire. God is. And all I want to do is, is come to you. I want to come to your altar. I want to praise you with a liar. Friends, There's reason to hope because you know what? God has already answered this prayer. He's already answered the prayer of Psalm 43. God has granted vindication. God has already done what is necessary to declare us righteous in his eyes. There is one who defends and pleads our cause, one who delivers us from all ungodliness and deceit and injustice. God has sent out his light. He has sent out his truth. He has led us and he has brought us into his dwelling place forever. And he has done that through his son, Jesus Christ. We have all sinned. We've we've all been ungodly, we've all deceived, and we've all been deceived. We've all acted unjustly before him, but God has sent his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to deliver us from all of our sin. His soul was distressed. His soul was greatly troubled for our sin. He experienced those feelings of of utter forsakenness by God as he died on a cross so that we don't have to. And he rose again so that we might be born again, according to 1 Peter, to a living 
hope through his resurrection from the dead. This is what he did. He is our light. He is our truth. And through faith in him, we can now enter into the dwelling place of God, not just for a moment, not just to experience a few seconds of relief from our despair, but we will dwell with him in his peace for all eternity. You see, Jesus is the answer to this psalm's prayer. And Jesus is the answer to all of your discouragement. And so you may, just as this psalmist, still find yourself in a season of sorrow. My friends, do not despair. We have an eternal hope through faith in Jesus Christ. God's anger is for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, and it may seem like a never-ending night, but joy will come with the morning. You may be cast down. Your soul may be in turmoil within you, but hope in God. You shall again praise him if he is your salvation and your God. The soul that sinks in sorrow is delivered by hope in God. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are near to us, that you have drawn near to us, that you dwell with us forever through your son, Jesus Christ, we have your Holy Spirit living within us. And and though we may experience times of great trial and doubt and despair, we know that they will not crush us. We may be confused and perplexed, but we're not destroyed. We know this because we have new life in Christ. God, we thank you that you can so clearly identify with our hearts, with our struggles, with our despair. We thank you that Christ has taken all of that on and and bore it in full measure so that we don't have to experience the utter sorrow of separation from you forever. So Lord, I pray that you would grant us faith that in the midst of our darkness, we would see your light. That in the midst of our confusion, we would cling to your truth and that we would hope in you. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.